I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he died, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking of himself. And one of the things we must constantly remember is that we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. There are a lot of people who like to work for salvation, but it simply doesn't work. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so we have a few times, a couple minutes this morning, to close our eyes and bow our heads. It's your opportunity for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, but also to concentrate and enjoy the service this morning. So let's close our heads and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have a relationship with you. The relationship, as I've just mentioned, through our Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. Father, we're thankful that we have an opportunity to come to you every day and all day long. We know that there are many challenges for us every day. And... One of those we have, and we've been praying for the past few, well, it's about 10 10 weeks now, for little Brady. And, Father, we're thankful that you've given him life. And there are difficulties with his, his heart, but we know that we trust in you. So we continue to pray for this, and we pray for him. There are many others in our church family that need prayer as well. So, Father, we're thankful that we can come to you every day. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to come to you in prayer. And we ask for your blessing upon those opportunities. And we come to you because he desires and even commands us to come to those to him. We ask for your blessing upon our service this morning. We ask, Father, that we will learn and be blessed for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I always like to begin every one of our services with a call to worship. Let's turn to Psalm 121. And as we look at this passage in Psalm, Psalm 121, notice that Psalm 120 follows Psalm 119, and of course, Psalm 119 is a very lengthy psalm. And we have sort of a break then between Psalm 119 to Psalm 20. And Psalm 120 begins what we know are a song of a saints. And the saints were the pilgrims that would return from various locations, as we would call them, pilgrims, and they would return back to Jerusalem. And 
Psalm 120 is the first of several songs of a saint. Now, we're not going to study Psalm 120. We're going to move to Psalm 121, but it is also a song of the saints. And this is, I think, a remarkable psalm. It helps us to understand what God is saying for us. And as a matter of fact, we could say that God, the help of those who seek him. And this tells us that God is our helper. As we look at Psalm 121, we have eight verses, and it breaks very nicely into four parts, two verses in each one of the parts. And as we move through this, you'll be able to see what we have. Psalm 121, beginning in verse 1. And two, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Now, verse one is a rhetorical question. This is not him, uh, one of the pilgrims uh, calling for help because he knows what he's going to see. And he's coming up the hills up around Judah. And he says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And so he's seeing Jerusalem and he's seeing the temple. From whence comes my help? Where does comes my help? And he's going to tell us that it is, it's going to be God, God's help for us. Verse 2 My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And verse 2 gives us a very strong affirmation. This is who God is doing for us. He is the one who is our helper. And this word, by the way, is used for God very often. And he is our helper. It says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, if we think of this as, well, the heavens and the earth, we need to understand that it's more than just, well, it's in the morning and it's at night. This is what we know as a uh, figure of speech. It's a a merism because what it means, it is God's omnipotent. He is over the entire universe. So our second part here, three and four, he, who is God the Father, God will not allow your foot to be moved. Now, again, we have another uh, figure of speech. Not allowing your foot to, to move would be to fallen, or he would not allow us to be harmed or injured. Uh, he, God, God the Father, who keeps you will not slumber. We're going to see the word keep here several times. This is one of our very popular um, Hebrew words. It's shamar, and it means to keep, but it means to guard. 
And so here we have either one of those who keeps you, and then it says, uh, he who keeps you not slumber. In other words, God is not neglecting, nor is he ignoring us. For behold, he, God the Father, who keeps Israel, shall, shall never slumber nor sleep. For us, as we read for, we can say that he keeps his people. And so we're not only applying this to Israel, we're also applying it to us today. He keeps us. He shall never slumber nor sleep. In other words, God is always aware. Point three, verses five and six. The Lord is your keeper. So here we are again. The word keeper comes from the Hebrew shamar, and it means the Lord is your guard. He is your secure. The Lord is your shade at the right hand. In other words, he 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 takes care from you. Takes us away from the difficulties of the heat of the day. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor, and we can in, um, use again strike, nor strike the move by night. And so verse 6 means there's not going to be dangers. There's not going to be um, criticism here or difficulties that would cause problems to us. Verses 7 and 8 is the last part. Psalm 121, 7 and 8. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. Notice, preserve is shamar again. It's our the word for protect or guard. So I like the word here, protect. The Lord shall protect you from all evil. He shall protect your soul, your life. Verse 8, the Lord shall preserve, protect your going on and your coming in. And so that is, again, another figure of speech. It's it's a merism, and it means that it's all day. It continues from this time forth and even forevermore. And that's his omnipresence. And so in this last part, seven and eight, you'll notice the emphasis that here of what God does for us. In seven, it is shamar, protect. The second line, he shall protect. That brings the emphasis to this. And then in eight, the Lord shall protect. Three times it speaks this, and it brings us to uh, an emphasis of what God is saying. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never going to have problems, but it means we know that God is with us. And uh, whether we have problems or difficulties, God is going to take care of us. And so this is very important to us. All right. Let's now take the opportunity for us for our giving. We do this every service, and it is to allow us the opportunity to demonstrate our love towards God. And it says, but this I say, is the Apostle Paul, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, 
And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, because God's lo- because God loves a willing, a gracious, a cheerful giver. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful that we have the blessings that you give us, and we're thankful that we can return to you with the winning gifts that you've given us, and we can give them to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to go over John 9, 1 through 44. We're going to end, we're going to try to do all the way to 44, if that's possible, maybe not. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to say a quick prayer. So let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church and thank you for our congregation and especially for your word, your logos that you have provided for us and you provided tremendous resources for us to be able to understand your truths. So we appreciate that or we pray that we can understand these truths and be able to edify ourselves and be able to walk in you in our spiritual lives. In Jesus Christ, amen. So last time I we talked, we talked about the man born blind. And and in our story, in the story in uh, John 9, 1 through, we actually, I think, ended at 7. You had a man who was born blind, and eventually in the, in the inquiry, the parents are going to confirm that the man was born blind. And please also turn to your Bibles to John chapter 9, and starting with verse 1. And so we'll find out that that chapter 8 kind of led into chapter 9, and as the Christ and his disciples are passing, the, I think, the temple, and they pass by a man who's, who's begging, asking for alms, who's blind, and the disciples go, Sir or Rabbi, who, who sent this man or the parents? And that's an odd question stuff. So that's, and then Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them that it wasn't the, his sin or the parents' sin that caused him to be blind, but it was before his glory. And then proceeded to heal him through the process of um, spitting onto the dirt, forming clay, and then putting the clay on the man's eyes, which is, seems very odd for us at this point, but especially when you got God and who could just heal him with a word or just a mere thought. And so, but he doesn't choose that method. He actually puts clay on the man's eyes, and then he tells the man, "Go to the pool of." Go to the pool of Siloam, which actually means sent. So the God or Jesus, who was sent by God, is sending the man who's born blind to the pool called Sent. So it's a play on words. God has a sense of humor here, and so the man immediately obeys and he goes directly to the pool. He doesn't ask, "Hey, who are you? What are you doing? Who are you? Uh, this is kind of weird. Please don't touch my eyes." You know that kind of stuff. You know today people. You know, upset about that. And so he makes his way all the way down to the pool of Siloam. So I want to, one thing I didn't mention about the pool of Siloam is that he actually, he, he could have gone to the pool of Bethesda, or God could have sent them, or Jesus could have sent them to the pool of Bethesda. And if you look up the slide here, and you look at the north part of, of the temple, 
the pool of Bethesda is at the northern top of the top of, and so, which was actually a lot closer. And the pool of Bethesda was actually more known to the Jews of the place to get healed. You, people typically didn't go to the pool of Siloam to go get healed. They went to the pool of Bethesda. And there was this pagan tradition that if you went to the, the pool of Bethesda, and then when the angel stirred up the water, and you were the first person to get into the water, and then you would be healed. And so that would have been more in the Jewish thinking, in the, in the tradition, that would have been the more logical place to go. And if you may remember that Christ actually went to the pool of Bethesda, and there was a lame man who was trying to get into the pool to get healed, but he, he couldn't get in there because he was, everybody was pushing by, he couldn't get in there, uh, it was kind of crowded, and he never could get in when the pool was stirring. And so Jesus comes to the man and says, hey, uh, there's some dialogue, and the man complains that he can't get into the pool because everybody's in his way. And so Jesus goes, that's okay, you're healed, pick up your mat and go home. <laughs> so he did, he never even got in the pool. So, but this strategy that God's or Jesus is with a blind man tells him, hey, uh, puts the clay on his eyes, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which is kind of a far walk for a man born blind. If you look at the slide here, um, you're going downhill quite a ways, and it's a it's a rough path. Um, I think I have another I have another slide that shows the. Okay, here here's a better better slide it shows the how the gradient is and how um, how steep it is, especially going down a lot of stairs and get to the pool of Sloam. And I think what Jesus is doing here, and one of the chosen methods, is that the reason why he he's telling or putting the clay on the man's eyes is he's having the man participate in his own salvation. He He's giving the man an opportunity to show his own faith and his own understanding who what's going on here he doesn't complain he doesn't uh he, he doesn't he just obeys basically and i think jesus had a kind of authority about him even to a man who was born blind even though he couldn't recognize him so the man immediately obeys and he goes to the pool of salome and then when he goes there he is healed and he he washes his eyes and the 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 Greek is very clear. He he just washes his eyes, and he washes the mud off his eyes, and then he's totally healed. He can see, which is miraculous, because like I mentioned last Sunday, if you just if a man was born blind or any person born blind, you just provided their sight, then their brain has never really caught up with their sight and all those the neurons and all that's required for somebody to be able to see because. When we're seeing, we're interpreting that information through our brains and stuff, and they all have to work together. And we've had a lifetime to make that happen. So, if you, but all this happens with the man born blind. Everything's restored; he can see perfectly. And then he even looks differently. And then the pool must have been very, very busy because of the feast of the tabernacles. And so I like that. And then when I first started studying this, I realized I did not really understand all the different feasts. And, and what the Feast of the Tabernacles really entailed and all the different attributes with the, the, with that feast. 
Wednesday, I talked a little bit about the feast and uh, all the... There's basically seven feasts in the Old Testament that's uh, outlined in Leviticus 23. But I just want to focus on the the Feast of the Tabernacles so we have a good understanding about that. Okay. Oh, this is uh, what the Pool of Siloam looks like today. Um, originally, when they uncovered it, this is uh, kind of off topic a little bit, but in archaeology, they used to think that there was another pool that they uncovered, and they thought, which is very close to the Pool of Siloam, they thought that was the actual pool, but then they uncovered this when they were putting a new sewage system in, and uh, then they realized, oh, this is the actual Pool of Siloam. The other pool is actually called the pool, I think, the Byzantine Pool. So if you go there, make sure you know the difference. There's the Byzantine Pool and the Pool of Siloam. So uh, there are seven feasts in the uh, that's outlined in Leviticus 23 that God commands the people of Israel to to uh, make sure they have these feasts every year. And uh, they go from the Passover to the seventh one, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is uh, this is where they fall in uh, through the months of the of the Hebrew calendar, and the Feast of the Tabernacles falls in the seventh month. Okay, which is around roughly our September and October, and uh, I know this is a little it got a little wonky here, so forgive me for that. But there's the last month is Adar, and I mentioned that every three years they put in a leap month. Uh, and make sure the calendar stays in effect or stays, it's calibrated basically. I actually got this from, uh, the now then Alliance Church. I, I, I saw this on the internet, so I called Bruce Powers up and he, he was very gracious to let me use this slide. He actually provided it for me. Please ignore the, the rabbinical feast or, or holidays, but, so they have some of the rabbinical holidays on there, but, it kind of shows where the seven feasts are within that calendar, and it's a, it's a little bit more insightful. So the the Feast of the Tabernacles, I have to pause here a little bit, and please forgive me because last Sunday I think I, I tend to go a little fast because in the Good News Club you only have an hour, and especially when you give the the message and stuff, you, you go really fast, right? <laughs> and so... And so uh, and I remember being over there and having to take diligent notes and stuff, and then the slide would go away. And like, wait a minute. Like, And s- some of your smart people actually take photographs of the screen, which is really super helpful. Um, but I realized afterwards, um, it, well, it was brought to my attention. I was going too fast, mainly by my wife. And then so so we actually conspired together to create a sign, that, and she would hold it up and have a pause symbol on it, like like the old tapes, you know, but... Uh, but we we ran out of time. We couldn't make the pause sign. So, but she's over there. She's going to tell me if I'm going too fast. And <laughs> all right. So, um, and if if I go too fast, and then later on we can revisit, or I I can provide the slides to you if you want. Um, so the 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 feast of the tabernacles, and I, Wednesday we went over the other feast. But I'm going to focus on the feast of the tabernacles so that you have an understanding of what's happening here. Because this is very, God, or Jesus used the, this, this feast as a very important feast to come out and actually identify himself as the Messiah to the people in Jerusalem. And the, the whole event actually starts in chapter 7, believe it or not. And so chapter 7, verse 10, where Jesus 
there's a conversation. He's in Galilee, and all the disciples say, hey, when are we going to the feast? And he goes, well, the time has not come. I'm going to hang out here for a little bit while. So everybody else goes to the feast, uh, go up to Jerusalem. And the reason why you go up is because it's uphill. And Jesus hangs back for a little bit, and then he goes. So so he goes, and there's an, there's an anticipation that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are wanting to find him and kill him. And so he's very much aware of that. But he's going to use this feast as a teaching tool, not only for them, but for us, because there's this whole understanding about the feast that it's a time of where it's light, where God dwells us, and the light of the world is dwelling with us. And as God dwelt with Israel during the Exodus, and then he dwelt with them, and it was very apparent because there was a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, and so that's the light that's dwelling with us. And uh, so the, the Feast of Tabernacles starts on the 15th day in the seventh month from Sabbath to Sabbath. So it's basically eight days, right, from Sabbath to Sabbath. And then on each Sabbath, there should be a holy convocation, which means assembly. So the, the whole assembly of Israel should get together and have a convocation. And there's no work on the Sabbath, obviously. And then for seven days, they offer, they provide an offering. Each family provides an offering. And plus, the native Israelites will dwell in booths. And you're probably wondering what booths is. I'll explain that. And then on the eighth day, there's another holy convocation, and there's no work. So if if you go, you don't have to do it right now, but if, if you went to John chapter 7, verse 10, you start seeing they... He goes to Jerusalem to participate in the Feast of the Tabernacles. So from 7 to 9 is the, is the whole eight days of the feast, from Sabbath to Sabbath, okay? And so then there's a number of events that actually happen during, while, while Jesus is in Jerusalem during the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. And People don't find out that he's there in Jerusalem until the third, like towards the middle of the feast. And so the Bible is clear about that. So I want to talk a little bit about booths. This is not the booths that we're talking about. Uh, so the booth, <laughs> so, so that when I thought of booths, I like, oh, that's like booths at a trade show. So this is the booths that we're actually talking about. So the, they were commanded, so people who are followers of the word were supposed to go and dwell in booths for the the Feast of the Tabernacles. And obviously this is a modern boost that they're using today in Israel, but I think you get the idea. So basically a temporary shelter, and then people would reflect on the Exodus and then having Jesus with, with them in the light of the world. So an interesting point about the feast is that Jesus comes out in the middle, and then he goes to the temple, and then he starts giving a message. I'm not sure if that's the holy convocation or maybe part of it or maybe it was separate. I'm not really sure. But he's he's there and then it's my understanding it's in the 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 woman's courtyard, uh right where the temple is. So when you go into the main temple area, not with the actual temple comp the actual temple itself, right before you get to the Holy of Holies or in that vicinity, you have to go through the court of women. And that's where he was giving his 
uh, message. And then, and tradition has it that there was this big candle, a giant candle uh, thing, and it was very large, and it was all lit up, and and Jesus is giving this message about light of the world and about himself with this big, huge candle uh, fixture that was very luminescent and giving very much light. And so I think that's very interesting. And and all that teaching of the Old Testament and people's knowledge of the Old Testament and then what he was saying about himself would not have been missed. Uh, I think that's very interesting and very encouraging for us today. So we're going to go to John chapter 9 and uh, we're going to start probably at verse 7. So starting at verse 7, and he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So he's now seeing and now he goes, He, the first place he decides to go, the man born blind, now he can see is to his neighborhood. It's like, where else is he going to go? So he goes to his neighborhood and then as, starting at verse 8, therefore, Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this or is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He he said, I am he. And therefore they said to him, How were your eyes open? And he answered them, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. And then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. And so, <laughs> and so he didn't know who the man healed him. He didn't know. It, you know, you, it's hard to understand. Like, he had to known it was, he didn't know the man, but then, you know, the Jesus was actually the word Jesus and who he was and the man from Galilee and, and people, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to kill him. So the, they may have known that, but he, he seems very sincere here. He really didn't know who he was. They, the neighbors, brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So I'm going to stop here. And so the in the rabbinical teaching, it it was against the, the the rules, the laws and stuff to actually needle clay. You could not... So his little act of making clay by spinning and making clay and then putting on the man's eyes violated their law. It didn't violate, it, violate the Torah, but it violated their rabbinical tradition and law. And so they're going to use that as a way to conduct their inquiry and find out, like, okay... Who's this man? Who? What happened? And then further uh, tried to prosecute Jesus Christ, and uh, as they go forward, and then some some people may not know exactly who the Pharisees are, and so just to just to hit that topic a little bit. So the, the, you had the Pharisees. That was one sect. It's a religious Pharisees are a religious sect of Judaism, and then you have the Sadducees and. I like how Pastor Dan always talks about the Sadducees, and the way to remember that is that they're sad, you see, and so that's an easy way to remember. Uh, but the Pharisees were influential leaders, or, or 
uh, influential religious sect uh, with Judaism. They believed in accepting the oral traditions in addition to the written law, and they're teaching, they taught the Jews that they should observe all 600 plus uh, law and in in the Torah, and they they were very very legalistic that way, and that you had in order to be a good uh, follower of God, you had to obey all the laws, and and it was to to the extent that it was very very difficult, and nobody could keep the law like that. So then there's going to be a inquiry, and the inquiry starts in chapter or in verse. Well, I'll start with verse 13 again. And they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I wash and I see. And therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, but he is, but he does not keep the Sabbath. And meaning that he violated the rabbinical rules. Another said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And then he said, He's a prophet. So there's actually a division that's actually happening within the Pharisees. And it's, it's not clear for, for me or reading it, is this happening with a small group of Pharisees or is it happening with the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin being the Jewish council and most of the people in the, in the Sanhedrin are Sadducees and the minority are the Pharisees. However, the Pharisees had more sway because they were more popular with the people. Uh, so this appears just to be a group of Pharisees and it's, it, the Bible does not exactly say where this is happening. But it sounds like it's happening somewhere around the temple. And then they, they reference the synagogue because the, what they're trying to determine, if, if anybody makes one false move or they determine that somebody's violated the law too much, they're going to uh, throw them out of the synagogue. That's going to be the punishment. And, and so they're trying to, they're trying to get enough information about Jesus because they want to kill him. But if, if the blind man born blind doesn't go along or anybody else in this inquiry, and then they're out of the synagogue. And I think once they go out of the synagogue and then it's like being excommunicated and how can you live your religious life? And then maybe spiritually you might be in peril. So I think it's for them, it was a big thing to be thrown out out of the the synagogue. So there's a division that's happening among the Pharisees. And I it appears that Nicodemus, the man you know where Jesus went to him, he, he's he's one of the Pharisees, and he's he's going to sit there and say, well, you know maybe we you know we need evidence, and you just can't make all these determinations. We don't know much, but we really seriously need evidence. So there's a number of Pharisees that are pushing back. So but there is a division among them, and so they can't. So they figure out like, well, maybe, maybe he really wasn't blind. Maybe he's faking it. You know, maybe he's been faking it all his life. And some of us have seen him at the temple, but, uh, maybe he's not really blind. So they call in the parents. Um, so then it goes on to say, 
Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs, meaning Jesus? And there was a division among them. And they said to the man born, uh, said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. Then the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been born, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they call on the parents, they get evidence that, hey, was this man truly born blind? And so they, yeah, they say clearly that he was born blind, he's our son. Uh, so now there's hardcore concrete evidence that he was blind. And you can see what God is doing here is not only was the Jesus heal the man, but God allowed this inquiry to happen. And so that you can look at all the different facts like 2,000 years later and say, if there was no inquiry, and then we would be sitting here thinking, well, maybe he was never really born blind. Maybe he was faking it, or maybe it's... But there's this inquiry, which they're going to test all elements of the story and about Jesus' healing, and that's what's happening now. But the parents are, are very, very concerned because they don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue at this point. Uh, they're They're afraid of the Pharisees, like a lot of people are afraid of the Pharisees. And so they're going to, they're not going to say, hey, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus because they know that will get, instantly get them kicked out of the synagogue or maybe worse. So they, they say, hey, well, talk to our son. He's of age. And then it goes on further. The parents answer them and say, we now, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means we do not, we, by what means we now see we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, and he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, and for the Jews had agreed already, if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, and ask him. And so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory and we know that this man is a sinner. So the man born blind, he's, his now his eyes are being opened. He he's now can see what's happening. He's, he sees these Pharisees. They're, they're having this inquiry and the neighbors were confused, obviously, because there was a conflict between what was happening on the Sabbath, what you can do on the Sabbath. And there was a healing they were just a little confused, and they go to the Pharisees, but the Pharisees have an agenda, and this and the man born blind is now a witness to all this. He's now he went from being the main subject now being a witness to this sign, this miracle that's happening, and he he realizes that the Pharisees are the ones who are truly blind, and now he's the one who can now see the truth, and he because he has an open mind, and. So and now and that allows us to see that these people, the Pharisees, who failed or would and would not allow themselves to see all the facts and 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 do a proper analysis of the fact and come to the right conclusion, you can tell now they have their own agenda and they're doing this for their own reasons. Let me let us continue. So the man answered him and 
why is this mar- why why this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from yet he has opened my eyes now we know that god has not here now now we know that god does not hear sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of god he does his will he hears him since the world began it has been unheard of anyone who opened the eyes of one who was born blind if this man were not from god he would not do nothing if you had been under reading the torah and reading the old testament all your life and stuff many of them would recognize that when somebody healed a man born blind that would be a sign of the messiah and so in a sense he's stating here is some of the audience especially the pharisees recognize that a major sign of the messiah is healing a man born blind and then the ramification is is that this jesus is truly the promised messiah and so that's being borne out so so in during the feast jesus declared that he is the messiah and then now he's declaring now other people are starting to declare because they actually are reading the signs properly and then in continuing in verse 34 they answered and said to him you were completely born in sin and you are teaching us and they cast him out out of the synagogue so they they firmly believed because he was blind it was the sin of him being when he was a fetus or or the fact that he um, his parents sinned and then you're probably like well how did he sin when he was a fetus well there was a tradition like if if you did and you kicked your mother in their belly and everything that was actually a sin and that's how you got a sin so it's obviously a very ridiculous thing uh so then he gets kicked out and jesus and beginning or continuing in 35 jesus heard that they had kicked, cast him out and when and when he found had found him he said to him do you believe in the son of god and he answered and said who is he lord that i may believe in him and jesus said to him you have both seen him and it is he who is talking to you and the lord said lord or uh, then he said lord i believe and he worshiped him and jesus said for judgment i have come into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be and those who see may be made blind then some of the pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him are we blind also and jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no sin but it but now you say we see therefore your sin remains so all the perfect illustration how the the pharisees were blind and they even though they had all the information available to them they could not see the truth yet the man who had hardly any information was born blind can now recognize the truth it's it's a huge contrast and so in conclusion in conclusion and i'll try to go slow on this so you can get all the points (laughs) So God provides the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And he's going to, by the way he's going to provide proof is that he's going to fulfill many prophecies along the way. And, the, and that's very encouraging for us. Believers or unbelievers are without excuse, as we mentioned last Sunday. Uh, there's 
God has made it possible for us to understand what truth is and what is, and, and that God does exist. And when, by looking at nature, we, we are without excuse. A person suffering from a uh, crippling birth defect might be of God's plan and glory. So in this case, the man born blind uh, was for his glory. But if there are other sufferings and other things that we go through, it's hard for us to understand why this is happening. But it may not become apparent till later in life or maybe never. But God has a plan, and there's a plan for that. And then highly educated people can be blind to the truth. And then people who have you know, not very much access to Scripture or to the resources that we have might be able to see, such as the man born blind. So thank you very much for your patience. And then if you need some more information, I can definitely provide the slides. So let's go ahead and bow our, our heads and, and conclude, or conclude our message today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today uh, and our message about the man born blind and about learning the Feast of their Tabernacles. We pray that we understand these truths and be able to apply them in our lives. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.